War is over if you want it. War is over now. Now, I didn't say that quite as eloquently as the song that that you often hear it in this time of the year. And some of you immediately know what song I'm talking about. But we've we've heard the song, whether we realize it, most of our lives around Christmas. And I have to admit, hearing this song... I've never thought that that chorus really fit in that song. It's a Christmas song, and yet the chorus, war is over if you want it, war is over now. Why, Why is that chorus in this popular Christmas song? Why in the world is it there? And I never thought it fit until I figured out why. It's John Lennon's Happy Christmas, which begins, and some of you are going to realize what song it is when I say this, So this is Christmas, and what have you done? And you go, oh, yeah, I get it. But think about that song, and think about how many times you've heard it, and think about the chorus. War is over. War is over now. War is over if you want it. This refrain that is sung by children in the background of this song As the lyrics of the song kind of meander through just generic platitudes about having a happy Christmas, about having joy, no fear, we hope it's a good one, and you hear all of these sort of generic general statements, and then the the chorus sung by the Harlem Community Choir in the early 1970s, war is over if you want it, war is over now. Why is that in that song? Well, in 1971, the song was released by John Lennon, and it came after a two-year protest by him and his wife, Yoko Ono, which you can read about that and read all of the crazy things they did along with that protest of the Vietnam War. But one of the things they did in major cities throughout the world, one of the things that was a part of this protest was purchasing massive billboards that said, war is over, happy Christmas, John and Yoko. And they were all over the place. And they gave these two years of their lives over to ending war and bringing about peace around the world specifically protesting the Vietnam War. But, but the way in which they tried to bring about peace was this, and this is why the song was released. Because they believed they could bring about worldwide peace. They really believed this if they just got everyone wanting it. If everyone wanted peace and collectively the world thought we we want peace and they, they pursued peace, then we would have peace. Peace would be given to the world worldwide. Well, in 800 B.C., the nation of Israel wanted peace more than anyone has ever wanted peace. This was a time in which Israel had been divided into two different Nations, two different kingdoms. You had Samaria and you have Judah, the northern and southern kingdom. And God had divided Israel into two kingdoms because of their idolatry. They had become an abomination to God. And God said, I'm going to take your enemies and wipe you out. 
And one of the ways he did that, the primary way he did it, was he divided them into two different kingdoms. And these two different kingdoms began to make alliances with pagan nations. And these pagan nations would end up stabbing Samaria and Judah in the back, and they would be totally wiped out. Now, after 2020 and 2021, it's not far-fetched for us to think that that could be a real possibility in our own country. Some of us probably even dreamed about the divisions in our country and where that could lead us to, being divided once again into a northern and southern kingdom or country. Some of us have even thought it's possible that, that even our own country, because of the sin that we have devolved ourselves into, you would see people making alliances with communist Russia or communist China or even terrorist cells in the Middle East. Imagine our own country divided in half and making alliances with pagan nations. It's not far-fetched, but it's exactly what's going on in Israel. The Syrians in Syria will be used by God to wipe his people out, to raise them down to nothing, a smoldering stump, a vineyard where nothing is left but dust. God says, because of your sin, this is what I'm going to do to you. Because of your sin, you will not know peace. You will know division, and you will know war, and you will be devastated. And he raises up a prophet named Isaiah to declare this judgment to them. And one of the beautiful things about the book of Isaiah is there is this cycle of the promise of judgment and then the promise of hope. And all throughout the book, this cycle just gets larger and larger and larger until you get to the end and the promise of hope in the cycle is so wonderful and so big that it overwhelms the judgment. That's what the prophet Isaiah does for the people of Israel. He says, yes, this judgment is going to be devastating, but there is hope and there is joy coming. How is it going to come? Well, we see in our text today that it comes through a child. Here in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, Isaiah commissioned to promise a happy Christmas. Commissioned to promise that the war one day will be over. How will it be over, Isaiah? Verse 6, for unto us a child is born. Look at those words, unto us, born to us. This child is going to be a gift to us amidst chaos, destruction, War, devastation. Where can we find hope, Isaiah? In the gift of a child. And we know this is the language of Christmas. We know what he's talking about. Even before we even say it in the sermon, we know who he's talking about. And then he says to us, a son is given. A descendant. A child. One of the legacies that God has promised to his people Israel, this son will be given. This child will be a part of God's promise to David when he promised that he would be given a son who would be given an eternal throne. And Isaiah brings it up. 
He said, this child will be the eternal son promised to David. Son also refers to king and heir to the throne. And this is why he says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. God's kingdom will rest upon this child. God's kingdom will rest upon this son. And for us, that's kind of, it's kind of odd to think about. When we think about how is God going to fix all of this, well, there's going to be a child born. See, we're so in tune with thinking about our own country. The last year, now you don't want me to bring it up, but the presidential candidates were 74 and 75 years old. And then here, the solution to the problem is a baby. How in the world is that going to happen? How, what, what sense does that even make? God's going to fix all of this through a child. Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When, when sin comes into the world, God promises to fix it through a child. A seed will be born to a woman who will crush this serpent's head, who has messed all of this up, who has brought deceit and sin into the world. A child will come who will crush the serpent's head. He will be bruised, but he will win. And then we see with Abraham, how will God bless the nations? It is a seed that will come through him. This man who, who, whose wife is barren. A, a child will eventually be born that will bless the nations. And then as we just said, through David, a son, an eternal king will come through him. God has promised his people all along that this will be repaired. Chaos will be destroyed. War will cease because of a baby. But notice how he phrases it. For unto us a child is born. As he describes judgment and hope, how is this going to happen? A child is born. It's in the present tense. And what Isaiah is calling the people of God to do is live as if this has already happened. And this is a theology of expectancy. What it means to expect God to do it is to hope. It's not to wish. It's not to wonder, is God going to do what he says? No, when God says he's going to do something, we expect it and we wait for it. We, we are in a disposition of just waiting for him to do what he says, not doubting he's going to do it. And imagine the people of Israel. Their land is devastated. Their, their alliances are with pagan idolaters. There is confusion and chaos in the land. And Isaiah says, just live like God's already done everything he's going to say. Trust in him. And that's what we do at Christmas. We know who this child is. We know there's a baby that has been born. And yet we don't know the end of the story just yet. Or we haven't experienced it just yet. But a theology of expectancy just waits for it to happen. We trust God. And that is to be the disposition of your soul as a Christian, waiting for God to finish the story because a child has been born. And notice what his name is. His name, his reputation shall be called. He shall be known or declared or championed as wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of these are titles of this 
child's kingdom. It's almost as if Isaiah says there's going to be a child that will be born, just like God has already always said. And then he gets carried away with who this child's going to be. And it's like a, a boxer coming to the ring. Well, you, you've got, you guys and women have watched maybe boxing before. And maybe, I know you've all seen Rocky IV, the best movie that's ever been made. So, so you know, you, you, you've seen that when the boxer's coming to the ring and he's being announced. Marvelous Marvin, Iron Mike, Kid Dynamite, the Louisville Lip, the Italian Stallion. That's what Isaiah is doing here. This one child is known by all of these names. Wonderful counselor. Now that doesn't mean super good counselor. I need some advice. I'm going to go to him. He's really good at counseling. No, the, the word wonderful is awe-inspiring. And it means supernatural Supernatural counselor means he is full of wisdom and he is full of God's wisdom, awe-inspiring wisdom. You will have a child that knows the mind and heart of God perfectly and you will have a king that does not make mistakes because he is supernaturally given the power of the Spirit to be wise. Mighty God. Now, this is common in the Old Testament. We think about might, which refers to God's power, usually through heroic warriors or fighters or deliverers, judges, kings. But here it's mighty God. This warrior is God himself. We, we read after the Exodus, God is, God is described and called a warrior for his people. He rides on chariots of fire he fights for his people as a warrior. And that's who this child will be. He will be full of divine might. Everlasting father. The word everlasting means he has no beginning, no end. He's outside of space and history because he is the one who created everything that exists. So he stands apart from it. He is eternal. But notice the word father. Now this is a title given to him. It's almost like saying... This child will be a father figure to his people. It, 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 there still must be separation, as Eric so beautifully described at the greeting time. There must be separation in the Trinity. You have the Son, but you also have to have the Father. And they are distinct persons who are both divine. But this is a title given to the child because he will be like a father figure who cares for his people, like a father figure on behalf of everlasting God. And then prince of peace means ruler of shalom, tranquility, no war, chaos stops. And this one will rule over a society, a nation, a place where there is no war, only security, only safety. Now, as we read through the, the, these titles... We have to understand that these are titles that can only be given to God himself. And so what Isaiah is saying here is this child is God himself. This child possesses all of the attributes of God and only God could accomplish these things that are described here. This verse is on Christmas cards, not just because another kid was born. Not just because another baby was born. 
But there was a baby that was born who was God himself. That is the only way you can refer to him in this way is that is if he is God himself. And here Isaiah bumps up against, and in the book of Isaiah, again, it's so beautiful because over and over it just bumps up against this mystery of the virgin birth, the mystery of Christmas. 800 years after Isaiah said these words in the womb of a pre- peasant girl named Mary, The Holy Spirit intervened in the natural process by which every other human has come into the world. The Holy Spirit intervenes and conceives a child in this woman's womb. And that is mind-blowing. That is wonderful, supernatural. The Holy Spirit conceives this child. And there, God, the eternal Son, becomes a child developing an embryo, a fetus, a baby, a child sucking its thumb in the womb of a woman who was 100% God, but also 100% man. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that amazing? And Isaiah says, that's who this child will be, God himself. It's mind-blowing, the son of David, the child born on Christmas, 100% man, 100% God. And we today live not as if this might happen. We don't expect it to happen. We're not waiting for it to happen. We know it's happened. And so you should live as if the wonderful counselor has already been born. The child has already come. You see, we live in a time where we want counsel. (laughs) We want advice, whether it's God's will for your life or the color of shiplap in your basement, pin it, whatever y'all do. We want somebody to tell us, how do I fix this? How do I take care of this? What should this look like? We are constantly longing for advice. We'll long no more and wait no more because God himself has spoken. The word has taken on flesh and squalled out in a barn to declare to you what the will of God for your life is. And it is follow him, follow me. Wonderful, awe-inspiring, supernatural counsel that will transform your life. That is what Christmas is about. That is what we look upon, God's word to us. We don't wait for mighty God to come. He has already come. He has already come in the child born in Bethlehem. You see, the reality is we fell expectations of others And others fail our expectations. We wait on ourselves to do certain things. We wait on other people to do certain things. They don't come through. They fail us. Why? Because we say this a lot around here. We're not sovereign, complete control, and we are sinful. And we will never meet one another's expectations. We are not sovereign, and we are sinful. And here's the reality. You don't have the might to fix your problems. You're not mighty God. And one of the problems with our hearts, because it's sinful, if God just said, here is the might to fix your problems, here's the might, the power to fix your problems, I'm going to give it to you, what you would end up doing because you're sinful is using it for yourself. That's why you can't have it. That's why you can't be sovereign. It's because you're sinful. But this baby was sinless. Because the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
The sin nature that we all have, he did not have. He was sinless, so he could die for our sin. And dying for our sin, not his sin, he was raised from the dead. And what does he say when he commissions his disciples? All authority has been given to me. Jesus, why do you get to have all authority? Because I'm sinless and the resurrection proves it. I get to be mighty God. I get to be king. I get to call the shots. This one has come. And on Christmas, you're going to look around the room and you're going to see people who haven't met your expectations. You're going to look around the room and you're going to see people who are not sovereign, who promised you things they could not fulfill and are sinful and maybe hurt you. You're going to look around the room and see people who aren't there because they're not sovereign and they're sinful and they died. And there are times at Christmas where that is depressing because there are things that aren't being spoken that you think need to be spoken about because we're not sovereign and we're sinful. And that's why at Christmas you turn from the people in the room and with your Bible in hand, you look to the sovereign, sinless child born in the manger. And he is what gives you hope. And you know everything he says is going to happen because he's sovereign and he's sinless. And he will bring about everything for your good. He will do it. And that is what Christmas is about. And that is what we, that, that is what we don't expect. We don't have to wait for it. The child has come. And we can live as though this kingdom and this king who does everything he says has come. We live that way, trusting him. Galactic strength, sinless galactic strength, swaddled in a feed trough. We wait no more. He's come. Everlasting Father. The reality is you are designed to know God as Father. That's, that's the way God set this up, is that you would relate to him as a father, not just some cosmic galactic force out there that's impersonal. No, God says you're going to know him as father. That's why he sends Jesus as son. And so in Jesus, we know him as a father. But that relationship is broken because of our sin. We've rebelled against our father. And one of the things we've done in rebellion against our father is we've tried to find that relationship in other things, in other people. God is to define our identity as our father, and yet we try to define our identity in other places. We are to be content with the affection and love of God as our father. But what do we try to do? We find that love and affection in others. We sinfully do that. We are to trust that our Father protects us and takes care of us and gives us security and gives us an inheritance. But what do we try to do? We try to find those things in other things, other kingdoms, other toys, other gadgets, other things that we can have for ourselves. when we're supposed to trust God as our Father who will give us everything we need. And yet the child has come. And the child lives as a perfect son to make us perfect sons. So that we can be loved the way the Son is loved by the Father. When you believe in Jesus, you've got to get this as the gospel. When you believe in Jesus, you are credited his death. Your sin is paid for. But you are also credited his life. His righteousness is given to you. And the Son 
Jesus, the child, God in flesh, has pleased the Father for you. He's not looking. He's not expecting anything else from you because Jesus has done it all. And that child in the manger, we say, because of him, God becomes our father. And it is our father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. In him, he lives a perfect life, dies a perfect death. We trust in him and God delights in us. He's not just tolerating us. And there's peace in that. Knowing you're not working for anything else from the father. And that is why he says, Prince of Peace. That's what he'll be known. Because he will bring peace to the world. He will bring, bring tranquility to your soul. You're expecting, right now, some of you, every year you do this to yourself. And it starts at the beginning of November. And you get all fired up about the holidays. And you begin to dream. You begin to, to just dream of the Partridge family in the living room. And everybody is with the smiles on their face and the picture with the blush on their cheeks. And everybody's like, hello, father. Hello, mother. This is so wonderful that you would invite us to your home. And then Aunt Janice flies in the door with the cigarettes. <laughs> and Granny Katie is saying, no, you need to get out of here with that. And here we go. Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. There's no peace in that. But amidst the craziness and chaos, you will realize y'all don't meet my expectations. And I can't believe I thought you would. But the Prince of Peace does. And I can have peace this Christmas because of the Prince of Peace, the ruler of peace. And notice how he will do it. He has come, but there's more to the story of the increase of his government and at peace there will be no end. This prince of peace will bring about an expansion of peace, an expansion of government that, that will cover the globe, his sphere of authority. There will be no end. There will be no end of the shalom. The, the word peace means war stops, chaos stops. And so there is a time in which Jesus will set his foot on the planet and there will be no war, there will be no chaos, there will be no death, no more. And it will encompass geography, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. They will be brought to, to peace under his authority. He will squelch the, the wars. It, it will be physical. There will, there will be no more chaos and curse in the physical realm because Jesus will put an end to it. The, the spiritual realm, the demons, the forces of darkness who hate God, that there will be an end put to their war. There, there will be no end to his peace. It will encompass all things, but notice where it will begin, on the throne of David. Why? Because this is where he promised it would start. He told David, you will have an eternal throne. You will have a son and he will bring about an eternal throne. And it wasn't Solomon, but it will be Jesus. And he will establish it there. He, he will uphold it, notice, with justice. Now simply put, justice means all sin must be punished. All sin will be punished with righteousness. He will make all things right. He is the only one who is not wrong. He is good. And so he will judge in rightness and he will punish sin in rightness. And this kingdom will last 
from this time forth when the child is born forevermore. And we don't expect that to happen because the child has been born. We hope and we wait for the rest of the story to be done. But even now we live as though it's done. That peace has come. The characteristics of peace here all-encompassing. This child will bring to peace everything that rages against God himself. Everything in your soul that rages against God. Everything in the world that rages against God. Everything in the spiritual realm that rages against God will be squelched by the child. And notice the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Zeal. It's a very powerful word. It means fury, but it's also mixed with love. Such an interesting word. It refers to God's power. And he's passionate in power. But he uses it in love. It's very similar to what we think of when we think of God describing himself as a jealous God. And what does God do as a jealous God? He says, you can't have any other gods before me. You can't. And if you do, I'm going to punish you. And that punishment is executed in zeal. And you know what that's like as a parent. You feel the zeal in your soul at times because you love your child and you are protecting them from things that are harmful for them. Well, that's what God says he's going to do for Israel. Notice with the Lord of hosts, this means the the commander of heaven's army, the highest ranking military agent in the cosmos. He will use him. Now, I think this is the child too. He will use the fury of heaven to protect his children and to bring about peace on the earth through the baby. The baby will make all things right. And we've seen that in Jesus, right? When when Jesus walks into the synagogue and demons are shrieking, and they said, have you come to destroy us? Yes. Out of zeal, he comes to make the spiritual realm right. As he stands on the side of a boat and the waters are raging and there's no peace and he speaks, we've seen his zeal to make creation right. We've seen his zeal to make death and sickness to reverse it and make it right. We've seen God's zeal in the commander, the Lord of hosts, who is Jesus Christ, who has brought about windows, little pictures. We see in Jesus' life little pictures where we look into the window and we see his power and we see his zeal. As he performs signs and wonders, we see it. We look into it and we see serenity of the kingdom. There it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. It has come. We expect more, but we don't have to expect. We wait knowing it's already come. We've seen him do it. So the question for us today is, then why is there no peace? If the child has come... Why am I not here today in complete peace? Why are there things throughout the the time of this sermon? Why have there been things where my mind has been drawn to these things, these problems, these stress, these worries that, that, that sort of shake my soul? Why is there war inside of me if this child has come? Why is that going on in my life? Well, the words justice and righteousness are so important here. And they mean all sin must be punished. There is war and there is chaos because sin has yet to be punished completely. 
But he promises he will do it here. Now, get this. God is a holy and righteous God. And because he is holy and righteous, sin cannot exist unpunished. That's why hell will exist forever. Is because sin must be punished. And if God says, I'm not going to punish some sin. I'm going to look over some. He's no longer holy. He's no longer righteous. And you shouldn't trust him for anything. But he's holy and he's righteous and all sin must be punished. And so with zeal, there will be no square inch of rebellion left in the world. And this is how God defines peace. So you're thinking about peace in circumstances and in different, different ways. God thinks about peace this way. Sin will be punished. And you will have peace with him. Because it's not just Israel and it's not the Syrians and Syria that made themselves enemies with God. It's you and I. And God will punish your sin. Every bit of it will be punished. Every bit of it. Or he's no longer just. And so the question for you is how will it be punished? And one of the beautiful things I keep calling... You guys are probably thinking, well, he's getting emotional in his later years. I keep using the word beautiful because the book of Isaiah is beautiful, okay? But it begins with this beautiful way where God tells his people this. He says, come on, come here. Let us reason together. As we think about chaos and destruction and war, the book of Isaiah begins, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's how the book begins. And that's why God is out for peace. He wants to make peace with you. Come, let us make peace. How do we do it? If you are willing and obedient. You shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so how do we have peace with God? He says here, if you are willing and obedient, we can have peace if we are willing and obedient. And that right there brought about more terror in your soul than anything I've said today. Because if you are honest, you say, I'm not willing and obedient. How will you have peace with God? How will you Israel never had peace with God. They still don't have peace with God because they continue to sin. They continue to sin. They continue to sin. They continue to sin. And then the child was born. And the wonderful counselor says to you today, come, let us make peace because I've made peace. The child has come to make peace with you, to declare that you are forgiven. The mighty God here, it is his blood that makes us white. It is his blood that makes us white as wool, white as snow. It is his blood covered. We are forgiven. It it is through his obedience that we please God and we eat from the land. It, it, It is through his peace. He is the one who was eaten by the sword of God's wrath so you can have peace with God. You see, peace is not expecting that your sin will not be judged. Some of you think that way. You think you're going to stand before God and he's just going to look past it and say, well, never mind, you're special. You're some, just forget about it. He's going to forget. He's going to forget all the things you've done. He's going to go back on his rules. He's going to say, I know I said this, but now I'm taking it back. He's not going to do that. And if you live that way, you'll never have peace. Peace isn't that your sin will not be judged. It is that your sin has already been judged at the cross. 
at the cross. Your sin has been judged. Your sin will either be judged in hell or at the cross. You choose. You choose, but it will be judged. And that's how we live expectantly, forgiven. We've been forgiven of our sin. Our worst day has already happened. The worst day of chaos and war has already happened for us. And wars will never be over because we want them to be. They will be over when he wants them to be. But because of his death for our sin, his war with you can be over now if you want it.